Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. On today's show, we welcome Dom Pates, Senior Educational Technologist at City University of London. Welcome to the Research Beat. Today's guest is Dom Pates, Senior Educational Technologist at City University of London. Dom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us, Dom, what does an educational technologist do exactly? That's a question that um, I often used to need a little bit of a response in my back pocket before 2020. The easiest way that I used to answer it was um, it's somebody who helps academics use digital technologies in their teaching. And that seemed to be the sort of easiest way to describe what was in many ways quite a complex job. Um, the problem was that it didn't necessarily give much further background, didn't really help people understand what on earth is an educational technologist. Academia, uh, the massive move online in 2020, answered that question a lot more, a lot more easily for a lot more people suddenly uh, an educational technologist is the, the the person who can help me keep teaching <laughs> uh, in, in the, that particular case. An educational technologist does lots of things. There's a lot of varied backgrounds that self and my colleagues tend to come from. There's no one sort of unified training pathway to get through. So people have all sorts of different backgrounds that they come to educational technology from. Obviously, teaching or technology are some of the key parts. Um, one of the things I tend to do is, I suppose, we push the innovation button, if mm. you like. Where universities have this, this remit around innovation with the kind of people who help academics to figure out what that might actually mean in terms of their teaching and learning. And there's all sorts of other things that we do as well, like we support systems, we pro provide training and staff development, we conduct our own research, we do horizon scanning, we perform sort of consultancy roles for our own institutions. So you know, we, we've gone basically from being a, a sort of niche, very niche role to an emergency service <laughs> uh, to now effectively a lot more mainstream than we once were. We'll talk a little bit later about how the past two years have really brought your corner of study in academia to the forefront. But for the moment, let's talk about your path into this world, because you started out in the classroom. So how did you go from there into this world of educational technology? Yes, yeah, so I'll step back a, a little way. If I pick a point in the mid-90s where the World Wide Web was starting to flourish kind of a little bit before the dot-com boom. Uh, I'd graduated from university and I was trying to figure out what on earth I was going to do with my life. You know, I'd done a, a humanities degree. You know, I'd sat exams in philosophical inquiry and you know, this kind of 
quite difficult to figure out what to do with my professional life. Um, but I had a sense that everything was digitizing and that um, I had to get a computer, otherwise I'd be sort of left out, I'd be jobless in the future. You know, the future would kind of run away with me. So I got myself a computer and I started learning how to use it. And I started finding that I could use it for making things. Music, for example, where previously I'd never had the patience to learn an instrument. And I found I was able to make music on a computer and it was quite transformative. And in this context of sort of 1990s scraping through here and there, I often would fall back on short-term teaching contracts to tide me over a particular period of time. So teaching sort of became something that I fell into a little bit rather than I chose to do. And in the early noughties, whatever we call it, 2003, I moved to Japan and I had a teaching job in Tokyo. I was very interested in Japan because I wanted to see what the future looked like more generally. That seemed to be a logical place to go to figure that out. Uh, but to my great surprise, the teaching environments that I found myself in there were a lot more analog. Uh, I found myself teaching in these small perspex cubicles with a piece of paper and a textbook sat around the table. But there was one situation where the, the company that I was working for, you know, English language teaching at uh, basically in these conversation class schools next to train stations, they ran in this was probably about 2005 they ran this what was like a video call center network for teaching across the country so it was probably around about it was before skype was quite common it was a proprietary technology i once had a member of staff run into the staff room and go oh one of these teachers has dropped out will any of you you know take a student and the student was not in the room, they were on screen. It was somewhere else in the country. Well, I don't know how to teach this way. I don't know how to teach to a screen. I was so familiar with in-person classroom teaching that this was completely alien concept to me. But I kind of didn't want to let the student down. So I was like, go on, then I'll do it. So I took a textbook into this cubicle and pointed it up at the camera and had a had a paper that I would scribble vocabulary on and we, we we sort of muddled through and found a way of communicating through the screen. When I returned to the UK, I got a job in a language school and the language school had interactive whiteboards in all of the classrooms. And having been used to sort of writing on these scraps of paper, uh, I suddenly found the internet on the wall and the walls of my classroom just blew up <laughs> or came down you know, suddenly i had the world on the wall mm. and as a as a teacher that was transformative uh, it was also kind of a, a gateway drug into educational technology uh, for me so I, I started using more technology in my teaching i started doing different kinds of teaching i became the teacher that other staff in the staff room would turn to for technology questions. I ended up with a sort of fairly substantial role in the parent company of this college I worked in, a UK and Europe systems trainer. 
and it gave me very big challenges. It gave me time zones to work across. And that sort of laid the ground perfectly for becoming an ed tech at City. It's a really fascinating story. And it sounds like in Japan, you had an encounter with the future. The situation you described of holding up the textbook is one that many will be familiar with today. It's a challenge that they've had to face over the past few years. In your day-to-day role as an educational technologist, what kind of intellectual challenges do you face? How do you help people? And what kinds of problems do they present to you? Well, obviously, in, in an emergency context, it's things like that. Like, I need to learn how to teach online next week, and I've never done it before. Obviously, I don't want to make this whole thing about the pandemic, but things like that little story that I had in my back pocket were really useful, because I could immediately empathize with an academic that found himself in a very uncomfortable, unfamiliar situation. I could say, it's all right, I've been there, don't worry. I've been through it, I did it in this way, and I learned this as a result of going through it. And I survived, I swam, not sank. So that was that was quite a useful thing. I mean, day to day, the sorts of things that, that come to me, are the kinds of things that vex academics day to day. And as a, as a senior educational technologist, I tend to work rather than with individuals or module leaders, I tend to work at program level or with associate deans these days. So I get to advise on themes that are affecting the school rather than they're affecting a class. So it's themes like, how do we handle student engagement for large groups? If I'm teaching 400 students, how do I make that an engaging experience? Preferably using learning technology. One of the things that we're looking at at the moment is sort of different approaches to learning design. As we come out of the emergency phases of the pandemic, how do we, to to coin a phrase, build back better? So hybrid has been one of the other ones recently. So from you know just the, the sort of simple ones of running a class where students are in person and online at the same time to more complex setups like field trips or conferences, how to do that in a hybrid way. I also get particular technical challenges that, that come my way as well. And that these are some of the things that are maybe less urgent. They're more a scratch that somebody has to itch. And that's the sort of thing that leads to some of the things I end up doing in my work. So when I started at City, I had one of our, our then head of civil engineering told me about these wonderful new projectors that they'd had installed down in there their civil engineering labs and they didn't have any computers in there she said well i've got this ipad can you help me to find a way to you know throw an ipad image onto the onto the screen uh, and usually my answer to these things is yes but the but is what takes sometimes you know years of research and trying to help shape a sector and uh, all of this other stuff last couple of things i'll say on there as well is um the wider challenges as well I'm, I'm thinking beyond the sort of technical issues sort of engagement issues things like what does decolonizing educational technology mean today what does decarbonizing educational technology mean today and where even where those questions have been answered that's useful 
for me to bring back to others in my institution. And where it hasn't been addressed, you know, that, that, that points to areas that are as yet, I suppose, untapped for the sector to start looking at. So there you've given a really good overview, I think, of what's going on today with educational technology. Do you think that these changes, these introductions that have been made, and again, we refer to this two-year period, do you think these changes are here to stay? There's probably a yes and a no answer to that. The no answer is the impulse that you see right across society for a return to normal, whatever that might mean, sort of back to how it was, go back to 2019. And that's not to suggest that things were all good then. It's just that these were more, this was more familiar ground. So a couple of simple examples there. You'll see lots and lots of institutions that will be putting students back in lecture theatres in the coming, you know, in, in September. And assuming that given that that's how they were taught 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, that's the medieval model of learning uh, in higher education. And that that's still how it should work today because it's, you know, it's, it's a known quantity. In-person exams, as well the alternative to in-person exams there are two sort of alternatives to them one is doing them digitally doing them online and that tends to raise profound and almost sort of you know horrific questions around surveillance um, if you distribute an exam cohort across their own houses and you have to have webcams as invigilators Mm. It's you know, what, what they're calling online proctoring uh, these days. Is is that really an effective test of learning outcomes, or is it just a, a, a reinforcing of the surveillance society? Um, the alternative there is is looking at authentic assessments, which are probably far more useful for students, even though they may not, as a whole, tend to get the purpose of them and it's much harder to go well you know a, a group project that will give you employability skills that has got sort of multiple marking points and uh, it's much more useful but does the end of the, the exam hall mean that you know, you you have to ask really difficult questions about it, uh, about assessment mm-hmm. in, in many ways it's much easier to just go back to the exam hall so i said i said at the beginning of that the response yes and no um yes in that like most sectors higher education has long been promised to be disrupted by digital technologies you know a, a common analogy is the one of the, of the music industry you know, where napster and the mp3 were supposed to have killed the distribution model for selling bits of plastic with with royalty models baked into them there were articles when the MOOC emerged as a medium saying that the that the MOOC is our mp3 it will lead to the unbundling of uh, higher education there was a report in 2013 saying the avalanche is coming it's talking about by michael barber who's talking about how how much disruptive change is coming and the irony was that in many ways it wasn't digital technologies themselves that disrupted higher education. 
it was a novel uh, airborne virus that prevented people from being able to access higher education in the ways that they already they always had and in, in some ways digital technologies became the savior of it this is your specialism and you very eloquently described for us there the push and pull of the introductions of these new technologies that there are plenty of people on both sides some who can see the advantages and embrace it but on the other hand those who just don't like it don't see the use of it and there seems to be a lot of confusion and uncertainty about whether or not these things are going to stay i want to ask you how you see universities dealing with these changes but also how you see students as individuals trying to deal with these changes yeah so i suppose if i deal with students first and then go out to universities i don't want to be one of these people that characterizes something the, the idea of the digital native is, is profoundly discredited these days as that of learning styles in uh, mm. education but we we live in a digital society and you don't have to have been born into a certain generation to be surrounded by digital technologies so these are reflected in people's domestic lives these are you know, people are immersed in digital environments in, in their domestic lives and it's it's almost inevitable that that will that there will be expectations that that is reflected in higher education now for, for your classic undergraduate who finishes school at 18 and then starts at a three-year degree straight after a levels they may find themselves entering into this world within which none of this stuff that they've grown up with or become quite used to is available to them anymore mm. which is a response that largely discredits the kind of work that myself and my colleagues do and have been doing at universities for you know 10 20 years but what i mean i suppose is the way that these tools are sort of em embedded and used to uh, enhance the, the learning experience in the last couple of years to go back to the pandemic framing students had a very difficult time uh, there's no way to ignore or, or avoid that and that fact but in many ways they also gained great flexibilities that they hadn't previously had so for example their tutors are suddenly available to them on their phones or their lectures are available to them on their phones yeah their, their universities are available to them on their phones so i don't think that as students are invited back onto campus that they're going to want to lose all of that flexibility they're going to want to have the, the things that they've been missing over the last couple of years which is the ability to form connections friendships communities even just by virtue of being in the presence of other people who have similar learning goals but they are also going to want some of this flexibility as well. Mm. Uh, if, if we take City, my institution, as one example, lots and lots of our students are what we might characterize as commuter students. Some of them, many of them may be the first in their families to go to university. They may have um, caring responsibilities or you know, additional work that they need to do to 
support them in their studies. And they just can't always get onto campus for a nine o'clock lecture on a Monday morning mm. because you know, the rest of their lives isn't sort of structured that way these days. So we, we have to embrace new models to support our students today. So how are the institutions trying to cope with the imposition of these changes? So uh, higher education institutions in some cases are trying to tide themselves over until they can go back to normal. There will be pockets in departments, in programs, in schools that are uh, keen to make out that all this stuff has never really happened. There'll be institutions that at the most senior level will say, well, this didn't happen. You know, we're gonna we're gonna go back to 400 people in a in a lecture theatre. Uh, there will be others that will have been through the experience and will have learnt from it, will have found that it enabled them to reach out to students in ways that they might not previously have been able to. And they'll, they'll be looking to ways to evolve, to evolve their programs, to evolve their schools, to evolve their educational strategies, their approaches, their assessment methods, and to try to do things a little bit differently. And there will also be those as well that will be looking to kind of embrace the revolutionary fervor of the moment and go, well, now all of this has happened. You know, we, we can do things differently. You know, let's rip up the rule book. This is going to be a slightly more provocative question, but I have to ask it. Do you think it's fair for students to have to deal with all of these changes in the first place? I don't think they really have the choice whether they like it or not. World War II wasn't experienced equally uh, across the world by the people that lived through 1939 to 1945, or 1943 to 1945, if you're American. It wasn't, although it's sort of, we can look back on it as a historical period, it wasn't experienced in similar ways. The COVID-19 pandemic won't have been experienced in similar ways equally because of the embedded inequalities still in our societies. But in many ways, it was a much more of a, uh, a common uh, experience for all of humanity at the, at the same time. You know, we, we all, those of us that have lived through it, had some things that we experienced in common. We had profound disruption to deal with. And one of the things that students do need to be mindful of is that these are not situations that are being imposed on them by choice. Their teachers are going through profound and similar difficulties, challenges, experiences themselves. And they're having to, in many cases, they're having to adapt and adopt new approaches at times when they've already got much more established ways to practice than students. It's a difficult one. I mean, it's not fair on any of us to have to live through this pandemic, but uh, I don't think we have the choice. It's out there now. We can only respond to it. One, two, three, four. 
The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. So what do you think is the future of all of this? Where is educational technology going? What are things going to look like in perhaps five or 10 years? So I suppose one of the things that is quite easy to say in a way is that it's uh, the, the last couple of years of mainstreamed educational technology or the, the digital in education uh, much more so than um, they would have been. You know, we've had an exponential acceleration of the adoption and experience of, uh, of these tools in uh, supporting uh, teaching and learning. So uh, in five or ten years' time, I'd expect to see some of this matured by then. I'd expect some, a, lot of it to, a lot of it to remain, a lot of it to be more mature. Um, we'd have gone through in certain rounds of procurement cycles by then. There will be different kinds of legislation that would have passed by then. Uh, there's big EU legislation going around digital services at the moment. There's going to be more disruption coming. You know, if we look at the heat wave that we're living through at the moment, we're all told to work from home again by the government. Uh, and this was a government that didn't want to tell anybody to work from home. <laughs> and the remarkable thing was that, you know, two years ago, we got given a, we got given a week to move a university online. And somehow we managed it. You know, now we do the stuff without thinking because these tools are already there and already embedded. The question of data is something people are, lots of people are still trying to grapple with but make more effective use of. And how that is manifest in higher education is generally through what we call learning, learning analytics. So I would expect to see a lot more there. I did quite a bit of investigation a few years ago into what, what uh, was starting to be called a smart campus. And yeah, maybe you might get called the, the intelligent campus you know, these days as well. So it's just taking the, the idea of the smart city. You know, and again, the sort of data embedded into physical environments and you know, machine responses in our physical environment and how that would be manifested in a university campus. As the climate emergency accelerates, as well, I would expect to see that question come in more into universities. And it's starting to, it would start to seep in more in, into teaching and learning as well. So, you know, how we power our lecture theatres, how we power the electricity that we need to use for all this computing that is the alternative to commuting. <laughs> I would expect to see better blended learning models, more established approaches to hybrid teaching, sort of in, in person and online at the same time. Um, and probably continued tension between sort of using this stuff at scale and you know, going back to normal. And uh, I suppose last point there as well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of the buzz 
ideas around artificial intelligence and robotics and the internet of things type stuff obviously some of that comes into the smart campus but uh, there are a lot of people trying to scratch at the ai in he itch at the moment i'm sure they will find more of a footing in the next few years so it sounds like you would expect a kind of streamlining and refinement of a lot of these technologies but also there are moral questions as you mentioned how is all this electricity to be produced to do this so it sounds like a very fine balance yeah absolutely and the direction of travel being one thing or another doesn't necessarily mean net positive or net negative Mm. Uh, in my view i think people have to look at what i heard described on a podcast the other day is signals of change these sort of little indicators that we see in our society of things that are likely to end up having bigger implications in later down the line i think we need to pick up these signals of change and anticipate how they may grow and interrogate them critically but also look for the the possibilities inherent in them as well so if we take something like artificial intelligence, for example, there is a tool available within the open AI community at the moment where you can give it a text prompt and it generates reasonably well-written text in response to that, which could very easily pass for at the very least, a sort of first or second year undergraduate essay. What does this mean for assessment? What does this mean for coursework? What does it mean for digital exams? Even What about the data sets that these tools are drawing on? How biased are they to produce the kinds of responses that they're producing? But what kind of possibilities are there as well? How could we harness them? to raise new and interesting questions about the, the development and the trajectory of our societies in the future. Because yeah, our graduates, I think something like, if I got a, a statistic from a, a presentation I saw earlier this year correct, something like 4% of our world goes to university, but something like 80% of, of leaders are graduates. <laughs> People in leadership positions are graduates. So, you know, people that pass through universities are going to be the ones that are shaping the future anyway. Here's the, here's the place for them to ask the questions. Very, very interesting possibilities. I'd like to pick up on what you mentioned there about open communities and a little as well upon data and ask you what your thoughts are on access to research and the fact that so much of this access is gated today. So there are open communities, but core research is still very much locked up behind a wall. Yeah, so when I was much younger, before the web was invented, some of that generation that sort of straddles the two, I remember studying for my O-levels and I used to have to get a bus on the right day, at the right time, to go into town to be able to go to the right library that would have the right kind of books that would give me access to information in order to be able to you know, study for an exam or 
or something like that. The alternative was whether my family happened to have um, appropriate information for that uh, at home, or whether I'd you know, been, been a good scholar in my studies and I'd actually managed to pick that up. We have the complete opposite today in many ways. And I'm painting broad brushstrokes here. You know, we, we live in the opposite world where we have uh, an abundance of information available to us rather than uh, a, a scarcity of, of information available. The challenge we have today is finding the right or the appropriate information rather than any information. You know, so we, we deal with questions there around the sort of dangers of misinformation, you know, what, is, what is curated for us by the algorithms. So uh, that's one framing that we can look at access to knowledge through peer-reviewed research. Uh, if you're in a higher education institution in 2022, compared to 1995 when I graduated, I still have far, far more information available to me or research available to me, even despite the gated communities that locks up a lot of them. And I still have to try to figure out how to navigate through that and sort of find the right sources. We all have you know, Google on our watches, even our phones, so it's, it's not hard to find stuff. We've also got a, a, lots of interesting sort of counter developments to that as well. Now, a lot of these siloed, I suppose you might call them big pub, you know, we talk about big tech or, you know, um, big farmer and maybe big pub is the sort of publishing cartels that lock up a lot of this research today but we've also got these counter movements as well i mean the the open access movement over the last 10 15 years has mainstreamed in a, in a lot of ways as well so you know this is again this is something that has only emerged from the existence of the internet and things like the possibilities made by Creative Commons licensing. And I think that sort of plays on much older traditions like um, you know, Karl Popper's Open Society and uh, yeah, things like that as well. It's the sort of internet equivalent to things like that. So, yeah, this uh, all of these countercurrents don't sort of prevent the fact that it's, there is still a lot of stuff that's locked up. But I don't think it's the only way to, to get to knowledge or research or information these days. There are people that choose to share it outside of these silos that uh, still have validity as well. Very interesting. So changing the subject slightly, can you tell us a little bit about your other activities? Because you do many different things and it would be great to hear about some of these other things that you get up to. Oh, thanks, Jordan. So one slightly connected to a little bit of what I do is I also co-host a podcast called Teaching Here and There, which is about hybrid teaching in higher education. And it gives me and my colleagues that co-host the, the podcast an opportunity to kind of convene a conversation around one of these emerging trends and figure out how other people are tackling it, and dealing with it and going through challenges. 
And you know, I think that the lovely warmth of the medium it gives listeners an opportunity sort of to sit in on these conversations and figure out what else is going on. It's not just me that's doing this thing over here. Other people are doing this sort of stuff. So it's as you're doing here, podcasting is a really lovely way to sort of convene a conversation. Staying in the audio space for the last 10 years with a group of friends, I've been co-running an internet radio station. And this is something that we set up. You know, it's licensed, so it's not a sort of pirate station in the classic old days of you know putting a radio transmitter on your on a tower block, you know, or mooring a ship off the the edge of the English coast. Hmm. Um, but it's a way for a group of friends to get together and play music for each other, uh, and open it up to the world if the world wants to listen. So that keeps my my week busy. Uh, plus the 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 joy of seeing my daughter growing up as well is a wonderful thing. Wonderful. And what inspires you in your work generally? Uh, it's a, that's a nice question. Music is one of the things that mm. inspires me a lot of my work. And my, my tastes are very, very broad. But it's something that helps me to get in the zone when I'm uh, getting on with something. It helps me to find peace. It helps me to do all sorts of things. But looking more specifically at the, the kinds of things that I do in educational technology, trying out new things, pushing at boundaries, these are, these are fun things to do. Seeing academics having these aha moments where I've helped them to be able to extend their practice in ways that they've not been able to reach by themselves. And even the simple things like just getting to the end of a project you know, sometimes there are so many projects that just never seem to an end. Just getting to a point where you can go, it's done. <laughs> Hit publish or whatever it is, that's that's done. You know? Absolutely. It's a great relief when that time yeah. comes, when the moment comes. Putting all of your experience together, what would be your best advice for students or anybody else trying to handle all of these changes taking place? Somebody who's really caught in the middle of it, how would you advise somebody to navigate this world? Well, we touched on this a little bit already, but I'd say that digital technologies are all around us these days, and it's important to become critical users of our tools, I think. Now, being a critical user doesn't necessarily mean to criticize something. It's, you know, 30 years ago, TV was evil. Now, the internet is evil. It's, it's not quite as simple as that. It's, it's asking questions of these tools and technologies, I think. We also talked about the specific moment that we've been through with the pandemic. And I think for students, it's important, I touched on this a little bit earlier, for them to understand that this is a period of significant change everywhere. And in such times that nobody has all of the answers. You know, there, there may be some of us that might be more receptive to these signals of change or able to read the wider landscape or sniff the prevailing wind, but nobody has the answers at this time. And that means that you know, the students themselves might be the ones with the answers um, as well. But also simple responses as well, like you know, if, you, if you don't know, ask. If you do know, offer to help. <laughs> That's good advice.
what researchers, academics or writers are currently exciting you, Don? So I got quite a quite a list here. Let me go through a well, let me go through a few. There are a handful of books that I've read in the, in recent years that have really stuck with me. Afua Hirsch, uh, her book uh, Brit brackets ish has has really given me a broader range of perspectives to look on nationhood. Yuval Noah Harari, his book uh, Sapiens, and what's the other one, Homo Deus uh, as well, kind of looking at our past and our future. And that's taking a much more species-wide view. I find he's got quite a, quite a fascinating perspective on things. Currently reading David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth at the moment, which is a horrifyingly bleak read of our future so far. <laughs> From the from a climate perspective, but I, th I think sort of looking at the world with eyes open there as well. More in in my space of digital education, the Edinburgh's digital education team produced a, a manifesto for teaching online. People like Sean Bain. That takes the I talked about this sort of you know, taking a critical perspective on technologies in, in education that looks at these tools and goes, you know, you know, these these are worth considering, but you have to ask the right questions of that. People I'd probably consider as friends, I mean, a couple of guests that have been on teaching here and there, Alexandra Mikai, Maha Bali. Alexandra is in, she's at Yale at the moment, and Maha is in, she's at the American University in Cairo. They both talk about things like pedagogies of care and, uh, you know, really important questions to to ask of uh, today as well i like people like mike sharples helen beetham as well um and then there's podcasts i listen to as well like um, a couple of regular ones i go to one called uh, how to save a planet uh, another one called outrage and optimism these are both sort of climate focused ones um so uh, christiana figueres who is one of the uh, architects of the paris accords outrage and optimism is one that she co-hosts and you know, brings lots of perspectives in on the the, the climate crisis, which is uh, very helpful to expand my own understanding of what's going on in the world as well. A really, really interesting and diverse list there. Thank you for that. So, Don, my final question, how can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Probably the easiest ways are through social media. I, I can provide my uh, Twitter handle, which is uh, at Dom Pates, D-O-M-P-A-T-E-S. Uh, or you can do a search for me on LinkedIn and I can provide you with both of the links for that for your show notes. Fantastic. Dom, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. One, two, three, four. For more on Dom, you can find him on Twitter and LinkedIn. And to listen to papers in educational technology, take notes and share, sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. 